Hey everybody and welcome to the Hack My Homestead podcast. This is Sean Mills and today is Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. Today I want to talk a little bit about dealing with the spring rush on the homestead. There's always something to do in the spring. You've got animals being born, you've got chicks being delivered or being incubated or sometimes being born. You have planting, you're moving your uh, starts outside to harden them off and moving them back in when you get an unexpected cold snap and trying to get everything set up and weeding your garden beds and doing all of these things and it can be overwhelming at times. Uh, alternatively, you also, if you're not uh, doing all of those things but you're part of the homesteading community, you're hearing other people talking about all those things that they're doing and Sometimes you're thinking, man, they're doing all of this stuff and I'm not doing any of that. And that can be a stressor as well. So today we're just going to talk about, you know, some strategies that I've developed over the years for dealing with actually both sides of, uh, of the spring rush and, you know, just some different things to think about as, as we're going into spring, as we're coming out of spring that might help you with, your mental state uh, during this period of, of all the th- all of the things to do and another time to do them on the homestead. So, starting off with the overwhelmed homesteader, um, I, I will tell you that one of the things that are actually two different strategies that that meet the same end goal. Uh, the end goal being less weeding to prepare spring beds for planting. Uh, the two things that I've done for that, number one is to cover up my beds in the fall after I've done my final harvest and just essentially let them go dormant throughout the entire um, winter. And then you pull out, um, you know, you uncover those beds in the spring when you're actually ready to start planting into them and then give them a nice heavy mulch. And that will do a lot to prevent weeds. Now you're still going to have some weed seeds that are just in the dirt bank. And then you're also going to have, you know, birds flying over and depositing, uh, seeds in nice little fertilized packets. And so you can, you're never going to be able to get fully away from it, but that goes a really, really long way in getting those beds to where you're not having to go by every day and pull weeds out of them. The other thing that's worked very well for me, and this is kind of where I live most of the time is in aquaponics beds. So, uh, that being, um, wicking beds as well as flood and drain beds. I find that as long as I am maintaining those beds pretty well through the winter, um, I have very, very little weed pressure, particularly in the ebb and flow beds. And if you don't know what that is in an aquaponics system, you're typically taking, uh, a sump that has fish in it and the fish uh, through their normal activities are going to deposit nutrients into the water and then you're going to take that nutrient and cycle it through growing media and there's bacteria that live in the growing media and that bacteria will actually capture the uh, waste and convert that into usable nitrogen fertilizer and other minerals and and things like that for your plants to use, thereby cleaning the water and sending it back down to the sump where the 
fish live. So fish have a happy life in that they got nice clean water and your plants have a happy life in that they're getting free fertilizer. So in this system, an ebb and flow bed is one where the water level rises up to a certain set point and then it drains out. And it can do that a couple different ways. One of one of the ways, <coughs> excuse me, one of the ways that I've seen this done uh, is with something called a bell siphon. And so a, what a bell siphon is, is it's a standpipe uh, that constitutes the drain. And the level of that standpipe is the maximum level of water that you're going to end up with in the system. And then over the top of that standpipe, you place a airtight um, pipe that's a little bit larger with a cap on the end of it, obviously, to make it airtight. But you've got some uh, holes or slots drilled in the bottom of that pipe. And what happens is, is as the water level rises up, the air that's inside of the bigger pipe gets pushed down through the drain pipe. So that creates, you know, uh, the same pressure both in the pipe and outside of the pipe. But as soon as the water level rises to the point where it actually falls, it, you know, it, it be, the water gets over the top of the drain pipe and starts to fall through the drain pipe, that action once it closes up the uh, drain pipe, now that air can no longer flow through the air pipe to equalize the pressure. So when gravity pulls the water down through the drain pipe, it actually creates a vacuum at the top of the, um, the bigger pipe, okay, the actual bell, and that vacuum pulls water up through those slots or holes that you cut in the bottom of the pipe, pulls it up, and then it gets pulled down through and so that's the, what the siphon effect is doing and that will happen until the water level goes down to the elevation where the drilled holes or slots are in the pipe and at that point what happens is that air enters the pipe it allows the pressure on both sides of the pipe to equalize and that breaks the siphon and then the water fills back up goes into the pipe creates suction creates a siphon and so on and so forth now that's an ebb and flow. A wicking bed, you just put water through the bottom of a bed. So you typically pump it in on one corner of the bed and let it drain out on the opposite corner. And then you have um, media, growing media in the bed. And normally what people will do is they'll put something like perlite uh, or even, you know, um, old drain pipe in the bottom. Uh, then they'll put a weed fabric on top of that, and that's to prevent the roots from getting down into that lower area. And then they'll put dirt on top of that, and then they might cap that with uh, some sort of uh, rock mulch, right? So uh, slate or uh, shale or, you know, pebbles. You can do all kinds of different things. Um, and in that scenario, what happens is, oh, and then also you have uh, wicks, so normally you use some sort of organic rope material um, that goes from the bottom part up through into the upper part. And so what happens there is that the capillary action of water will pull some moisture up through the wick from the wet part to the dry part being the soil. And so again, you just have you know a nice uh, constantly moist growing uh, media to grow your plants in. And so uh, either one of those systems, and this wasn't meant to be a diatribe on, 
aquaponic systems. It was just meant because I, I'm, I was talking about it and I figured, well, maybe uh, for folks that don't know what that is, I should mention what it is. And then, of course, in aquaponics, there's also a third uh, type of growing style called floating beds. Now, in a floating bed, what you're doing is you have a floating something in, in a water uh, bed, and then you're just putting net pots in there and going out through that. And that's actually how I grow most of my lettuce. So, um, so those are the three types of aquaponic system. And what I've found is that I very, very rarely get any weed pressure at all in my aquaponic system. So that's the other uh, long way of going around uh, to where I started and saying that, you know, one way is to cover your beds and then when you bring them back to life in the spring, go heavy mulch and then plant into into them. And the other is using aquaponic system. Um, and that was just because I found that a lot of the time in the spring I spent weeding. And so it's like, okay, well, what can I do to, um, to prevent that? The other thing that you can do in the winter is you can go ahead and prune your trees. And this is both productive and non-productive trees. Uh, and so when those trees are gone, have gone dormant, you can actually go in and shape them the way that you want them. If you've got lower branches that you don't like and don't want anymore, you can adjust that and uh, you know fix that problem. And then you can also go in and remove any trees that um, have died or aren't growing in properly, or whatever the case may be, trees that you don't want. Um, in my opinion, it's better to take trees down in the winter because you don't have leaves all over them and uh, you can leave the nutrient and other things in the ground rather than have them uh, be used up by the plant to leaf out and then cut the tree down. <coughs> Excuse me. With animals, um, the biggest thing is you just have to be ready for the animals. You know, um, we are rarely surprised when animals arrive on our homestead. Uh, we are often surprised at the fact that our infrastructure for those animals is not adequate. And so, you know, we always try to tell people that are running into this problem, like, okay, you can't un, you can't get unpregnant right at this point. But what you can do is you can try to put your infrastructure in place for an animal or an animal system before you get the animals. And that's just a best practice. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of people and I was one of them that ordered chicks or ducklings. And after I got them on the homestead and into a brooder, which like for when we did ducks the first time was literally a bathtub. Uh, then I was like, Oh, okay. Well, you know what? We, I need to start building some structure for these guys. And of course the structure that I built was completely and totally inadequate. And I had to build additional structures later. Uh, so I would say, use the old begin with the end in mind philosophy and go ahead and build out your infrastructure the way that it's going to be when the birds are two years old and and or the uh, pigs are farrowing and go ahead and build that first and then get the animals in. Uh, I will also say that having moms for birds is a, a big deal. Uh, I didn't realize how big of a deal this was until we moved to our off-grid location and we inherited chickens and they actually started raising their own babies. And it was like, oh man, that is so much easier to just have a whole bunch of, of chicks running around with mama bird than me having to mama bird them. Uh, now I will say that you get a significantly higher number of losses in that scenario. 
Um, you know, chicks, uh, there's a lot of things that'll eat chicks. And in my experience, when something gets into the nest, mom's going to make sure she gets away and she's going to attempt to, to get as many of her chicks away as she can, but she's not going to run in there and fight a raccoon, uh, over chicks. Right. And so, um, so you will get a lot more losses if you're not having the chicks go from a brooder to, uh, you know, a chicken tractor or something like that. So that's a big thing when you've got goats or other, um, larger animals and they're having babies in the spring, you just, again, you've got to be ready. You've got to have your separate farrowing area or kidding area set up before it's that time. Uh, now, the good news is is that if your animals get pregnant, you've got plenty of time to get that, those systems in place before you actually need them. But all too often, we're surprised. Uh, and I won't say, uh, surprise isn't the bad word, but unprepared would be a better word uh, for, for new arrivals onto the farm. And then you've got, you know, the, the stress of, okay, I'm starting my seedlings inside and then I'm moving them outside to harden off. And then I got a late freeze and anything I may have already put into the ground, uh, is, is potentially going to die. And so, you know, I think one of the ways again of dealing with that is pre-planning. So if we're going to get a late freeze, what am I going to do now? I know people that have a, that start a ton of seeds and they just say, well, if we get a late freeze, then, you know, the portion of the seeds that have already been transplanted will die mostly. And I have other ones ready to go out and I'm planting in phases. And I understand when I do that, that some of my early phases may get killed off. And that's okay with me because the reward, if they don't get killed off, is that I get an earlier than normal harvest. And hey, that's a great, that's planning, right? Um, But the other thing that you can do is it's not very hard to frost proof your uh, garden beds or your aquaponic systems or your raised beds or whatever you know the case may be now on large acre farming if you're going to plant an acre of corn well that's a different idea if you're going to plant an acre of corn then you need to be planting it at the right time uh, to make sure that your chances of a late freeze killing anything off are very 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 low but even with that you could get low uh, tunnels, uh, because normally as long, as long as you're not really, really rolling the dice and planting super early, what we're talking about is hard frost, right? We're talking about low thirties. We're not talking about, you know, below 28 degrees, you know, overnight temperatures. And so a little bit, I will tell you that one of the most ingenious methods that I ever saw for, uh, frost proofing, uh, um, plants was a little small uh, tunnel with made out of scrap uh, PV not PVC uh, PEX piping with the uh, um, not the LED but the incandescent um, gosh I'm drawing a blank here uh, Christmas lights yes thank you <laughs> uh, incandescent Christmas lights. And so what they would do is, is they would put those on a thermal cube. So a thermal cube will turn on at 40 degrees. And so in the evening, they would turn on the power to the, um, to the string of lights with a thermal cube and, you know, at whatever o'clock, um, the, um, the temperature dropped below 40 degrees in the tunnel, 
the lights came on and they threw out enough heat to keep everything from freezing overnight. I thought that was a great idea. I've seen people do that with trees as well. Um, draping, um, you know, poly, uh, plastic over the top of a tree and taping it together. So it's closed and then kind of putting Christmas tree lights on the tree. And so, you know, it's a great idea and it works and it's an easy and cheap solution. And guess what? When you are putting your Christmas lights away from the year, and by the way, an LED lights will work as well. Um, incandescents just throw off a little bit more heat. Uh, but I have seen people use LED lights as well, specifically on uh, fruit trees to prevent their uh, blossoms from being frost killed. And so, yeah, it's a little bit of extra work. But if you have A, the plan, B, the process already put together, in the event that you're going to get a late freeze, it's just executing the plan by following the steps of the process. And so, the franticness gets taken out of it. And the other thing that we found uh, through homesteading is that if we are prepared for something to happen and it happens, the stress level that we get from executing our plan is way, way, way low, super low. Yeah, we're, we're a little worried that something might go wrong, but the things that we can plan against, we've planned against and we've implemented those plans. And so... You know, and I would say that the best source of of that kind of knowledge is just talking to your neighbors, especially if you've newly moved into an area. Uh, you're going to meet people that are also doing some farming and gardening and things like that. Talk to people that are doing the same things that you're doing. Uh, ask them how they're de- dealing with certain issues, and you'll end up with a lot of local knowledge. Old farmers are fantastic. I mean, it can be literally something as small as hey, that row of plant of trees that you're going to plant uh, on that ridge over there, you know, if I were you, I'd plant them about eight foot down from the top of the ridge because that way you get extra wind protection when the plants are young. And also it's going to be cooler uh, further down and you will actually have plants that will leaf out later and uh, blossom later, which means they're less likely to get that early frost uh, kill off and you know things like that where you might not even you might know that's something you need to deal with but not know exactly how to deal with it and you talk to someone who's lived in the area for 50 years and they're like oh yeah this is what you need to do so it's another reason for making sure that you're getting out there and meeting your neighbors and being involved in your local community (coughs) excuse me so I guess all that boils down to um, being ready by evaluating the things that are most most likely to occur that could impact you, that have a high impact, putting a plan together for how to deal with those, and having your process in place, knowing who's responsible for doing what um, as you work through that. And then the other thing I would say is if you're on the other side of that coin where you are going slow or maybe you're, you've started a homestead but you still have an off-homestead job, um, or, you know, for whatever reason, you're not doing all the things and you're seeing all of the social media with, you know, oh, my, you know, my baby lambs were born today or look at these piglets or, oh, my gosh, look at all my little quail that just hatched out. Uh, oh, my gosh, we have ducklings on the on the homestead and and you're seeing all of these things happen and 
and you're seeing people talk about moving their chicken tractors and oh we've got the all the raised beds planted and oh my gosh we're harvesting lettuce already and and uh, look, our garlic is, is coming up and we're pulling garlic scapes and making pesto and all these things. And you're not doing any of those things or you're not doing most of those things. Um, don't let that get you down. Um, if you want to do those things, you know what you can do? You can reach out to those people in your network and say, hey, you know, uh, I'm really enjoying what you're doing. I'm, I'm, your pictures are awesome. Can I come out and help you with anything this weekend? You know, I'd like to free. Can you show me what your process is for managing your garlic? Like what, where you put it on the property or whatever it is. Uh, and that allows you to a build community and B, it allows you to do the thing without, you know, it's kind of like being a grandparent, right? You get to play with the baby and then you get to give the baby back to mom and dad and they go home. Right. And so it's kind of the same idea. You may not be ready to full time manage all these different things on your homestead, but that doesn't mean that you can't have the experience of dealing with those different things. And uh, the other thing is, is that, you know, don't let anyone homestead shame you. You know, don't let anyone if you're if you're doing one thing that's perfectly fine. If you're doing no things, that's perfectly fine. Now, I don't know if we can really call you a homestead if you're not growing anything or doing anything. But, you know, the idea that my point is, is that don't let anyone actually shame you into thinking that you're not doing enough um, because you're doing exactly the amount of things that you need to be doing or you wouldn't or you would be doing more or less. Okay. And so, you know, one of the big ways of dealing with stress is to not take on too much stuff and not get into a place where you're so bogged down that you don't have any time to actually relax and enjoy life because you're working 10 hours a day and driving an hour a day each way and then coming home and working four hours in the evening to weed and to set plants out and do all of this stuff. And then an hour in the morning to do all of the animal related chores. Like that's too much. Okay. And in that scenario, what you need to be doing is you need to be doing what you can and be proud of what you're doing. Be proud of what you can do. That way, when someone asks you that question, you know, you're not embarrassed. I mean, I've been there before. And I've, I've been talking to people before where it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, where are you guys located? Oh, okay, not too far from us. Now, what kind of stuff are y'all doing on your homestead? Oh, we're doing this and that and this and that and this and that and this and that. How about you? Uh, we have ducks. And they're like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> I remember my first beer. <laughs> you know, so it's like, um, don't let anyone shame you and make you think that you're not doing enough. Um, have that, have that, you know, personal resiliency to say, you know what, I'm doing exactly what I need to be doing. And I'm not doing any more than that because I don't want to overload myself and, uh, and be fine with that, you know, be, be proud of that being in that situation. Um, and so I guess both of those things really boil down. The first one boils down to planning and preparation. If you plan for it, your stress level for dealing with it goes down exponentially, um, and then the second one is be comfortable with the amount of work that you're doing. Know that that's the amount of work that you can do. Do that the best that you can, because can you imagine trying to do turkeys and quail and ducks all at the same time for the first time ever on your property the first year? 
and half of your animals die because you really didn't know what you were doing. Like it would be way better to just do ducks and learn how to do ducks and learn how to deal with all the problems with ducks. And then next year we're going to add chickens after visiting some of our friends that have chickens and figuring out what the best plan is going to be for a chicken run and coop or to free range them or whatever it is that we're going to end up doing. Um, you can go experience the chickens. You can go trade, um, you know, duck eggs for chicken eggs or duck carcass for chicken carcass and do all those things. But you don't have to learn because those animals have different requirements, right? So trying to learn all of those things at one time, which is what a lot of us do. A lot of us move out to the country. We finally get on our homestead. We've been waiting for so long. We've been reading Mother Earth news and we've been reading, you know, the encyclopedia of country skills and all of these things over and over again. And we finally get out there and I want this and I want that and I want this and I want that. And then everything fails because we weren't ready for the first thing. And if you're not ready for the first thing, then, well, you've got time if that's the only thing you're doing. But if you're not ready for the first thing and you've got eight things, then none of those eight things are going to work out too well. Well, I think I'm going to go ahead and call it uh, there today, folks. Um, Thanks for joining me today. If you have questions or if there are things that you want me to cover on the podcast, just send me an email, Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at hackmyhomestead.com. Yesterday's show where we talked about uh, well pumps was directly uh, because I was getting some questions about those um, and and how to run those off of solar. And so, yeah, just keep getting those questions into me and I will keep getting them answered. And I really appreciate all you guys that are listening. And I really, really appreciate the email feedback. Uh, if there's something, if there's uh, sound quality issues or if there's something that, uh, you know, you guys think would be an enhancement to the way I'm doing the podcast, send me the note. I'm not going to say I'll be able to do it, but I definitely want to get feedback from you guys on what's happening and, um, you know, what your experience in listening to the podcast is like. So thank you so much. Thanks again. And we'll talk to you next time.